Hey, I hope you're having a great summer so far, and uh, we are really looking forward to getting the chance to see you at one of these summer worship nights, and we also anticipate getting to see more of you in September because we are planning to offer a number of 50-person worship gatherings, uh, church service gatherings every weekend starting in September. Uh, we anticipate that we'll be able to accommodate about 400 of you, and now I know that's not nearly um, enough for our church, but we do recognize that a number of you aren't able or, or won't come at this stage under these circumstances. And so we plan on continuing to offer our online service every week, much like we have been doing, but also offering a number of 50-person gatherings both north and south of the Fraser. Um, there will be more information coming on that. It will come soon, but you can anticipate seeing more and the opportunity to sign up uh, probably in late August or the very beginning of September. We really do look forward to getting to see many of you then. You know, it's become uh, quite an infamous conversation, but the late Steve Jobs, uh, who's the creator of Apple, and the CEO of Apple at the time was um, trying to lure John Scully, who was an executive at Pepsi at the time, to Apple. And here essentially was his pitch. Do you wanna sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you wanna come with me and change the world? You know, this up and coming generation, Gen Z, uh, they kind of twitch a little bit when they hear words like institution. <laughs> but, but Gen Z and millennials as well, what they do really want to be a part of is a meaningful movement. And I want to tell you today, there, there's no greater movement in the history of the world than the church. I really believe that. And there's also no greater calling to spend your life on than engaging in countercultural mission. Now, every human being at some point or another that really ask a number of existential questions, questions like, is there a God? How did I get here? What's the purpose of life? What happens when I die? Now, as we've been working through these five practices of resilient disciples, we are on the fifth and final one today, um, a number of these practices have actually spoken into and given shape to answers of these big existential questions from a Christian perspective. The first and, and primary um, practice of resilient disciples is intimacy with Jesus. And what intimacy with Jesus does is it forms the deep source of our identity, both here on earth and in eternity. And then there's cultural discernment. Cultural discernment involves the life of the mind and the robust perspectives we must cultivate together in order to think Christianly about ourselves and the world. Third, we looked at meaningful relationships and recognized that meaningful relationships are about devotion to other believers who shape us and who we shape to become more like Christ. Fourth, last week we looked at vocational discipleship and how it relates to personal calling and finding how God invites us to live for him in the workplace and provide even deeper meaning to the work of our hands. Today, we will wrap up, and in many ways, countercultural mission is the outward-facing expression of all the other practices. It's what we as the body of Christ, the church, go about doing together for the sake of the world. 
And this idea of engaging in countercultural mission has really compelling answers to some significant existential questions, like can I make a difference, and what really matters, and what counts for a life well lived? I'm hoping to show you today some compelling answers to those questions that we all have. I really believe that by engaging in Jesus' countercultural mission in the world, we can make a difference, the greatest difference. We can give ourselves to what really, truly matters and matters according to God. And we can carve out a life well-lived for the sake of the gospel in service to others. Like, do you want your life to count for something? If you do, then I would encourage you to engage in countercultural mission. So before we go any further, let's define a couple of words I've used a few times already, and then we'll look at some stats. This word countercultural, we hear it all the time, but the way I'm going to be using it today, countercultural, I'm, I'm referring to a way of life in Jesus that runs against the grain of the world. And when I say mission, so countercultural mission, I'm talking about the, the reality that God is powerful, active, and intentional, and he wants his followers to play a part in redeeming people and restoring the world to himself. Biblically, this includes a wide range of aspirations, including serving others, caring for creation, receiving God's blessing in order to bless others, and seeking to save the lost in Jesus' name. The God of the universe wants you and me to be a part of his mission. Now take a look at these uh, stats here with me. Resilient disciples have a deep sense of mission deeply woven into the fabric of who they are and their passions. We see that 90% of resilient disciples say they want others to see Jesus reflected in them through their words and actions. Compare that with with 29% of, of nomads or those who identify as Christians but aren't a part of the church. 76% of resilient disciples acknowledge their personal responsibility to share their faith with others. That drastically declines to 34% for habitual churchgoers. Those who attend church regularly but don't meet the, the, the kind of definitions that Faith for Exiles puts on resilient disciples. We see that 67% are excited about the mission of the church in the world today. Not surprisingly, only 5% of prodigals or or ex-Christians would agree. 66% of resilient disciples see serving others, which is countercultural in itself, serving others as a major part of their lives. Merely 20% of nomads would say the same thing. And so we see Resilient disciples have a deep sense of mission. We've been working through uh, the, the letter of 1 Peter uh, as we've been going about this series. And, and I invite you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We will be in verses 13 to 15. Let me read them for you. They say this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed Have no fear of them, right? Those who cause you to suffer, those who persecute you. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. And then into verse 16, it says, having a good conscience. Here's where we're gonna go with our time today. First, resilient disciples prioritize courage over safety. Second, resilient disciples are prepared to share the hope they possess. And third, resilient disciples conduct themselves in a spirit of love and respect. So first, resilient disciples prioritize courage over safety. Let me read it again. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, or indeed even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here's what's being said. Since believers are blessed by God when they suffer, Peter is telling his hearers that they shouldn't fear what unbelievers can do to them. Instead, they should honor, they should reverence Christ as holy, meaning they are to believe that Jesus, not one's human opponents, Jesus is in control of events. Put another way, since nothing can separate us from the promises of God, including our future inheritance, fear is replaced with hope and boldness with courage. Now we're a couple generations deep into helicopter parenting. I can relate to this. Helicopter parenting and participation ribbons and and trying to insulate our children really from all hardship or any failure. (laughs) Uh, There's this book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which not only is a great book title, The Coddling of the American Mind, but it's a book about the effects of the emergence of safetyism and how this safetyism, it, it, how it's set a generation up for failure. Young kids raised in the environment of safetyism who are now in college or have graduated from college, and it hasn't done them any favors. I, could it be that we've, we've wrongly prioritized safetyism as our highest aim in the church? There's this story in Acts chapter four about Peter and John and they're before the same Jewish, Jewish council that put Jesus on trial. And you know what their fellow believers were praying for them for? I'll give you a hint. As their fellow believers were praying for them, they weren't praying. They weren't praying for a hedge of protection. They weren't praying that, that an angel army would remove Peter and John from that difficult situation. They weren't praying that when they were to leave the council and come back to the church that they would have traveling mercies. Now, I say all that, but I actually want you to see what they did pray. We see it in Acts chapter four, verse 29. This is what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to Continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Why did they pray for boldness? Why did they pray for healing? Because their highest priority was to make Jesus known to engage in the countercultural mission of God. That was their highest priority. So they didn't pray for traveling mercies. They didn't pray hedges of protection. They prayed that they would continue to be bold in the face of adversity. 
I'm probably going to get in trouble for this next one, but you know what, what thing I've heard prayed for in commissioning services of missionaries and short-term missions trips more than anything else? You know what the thing is I've heard prayed for the most in those settings? Safety. I'm, I'm not opposed to safety, and I hope for safety, but I've literally sat in commissions of missionaries and short-term missions trips where not a phrase uh, that the lost would be saved was even prayed. What was the prayer? Keep them safe as they fly. That they'd be able to settle into a nice place, you know, like, okay, like that stuff matters. But look, the desire for safety in parents of children and teenagers is a good thing. Please don't get me wrong. I seek that for my children. And churches should be a safe refuge and respite from the world. But exile isn't safe. And the mission of God isn't safe. This idea of safety first, right? Safety first, safety first. But if there's a scenario where someone's drowning, are those observing meant to think safety first or are they meant to risk to save? If someone's trapped in a burning home, is, is, is the mindset to be safety first or let's do everything we can to save that person in danger? Look, we live in a world that, that desperately needs Jesus and hedges of protection during our Mexico missions trips that have a stop at Disneyland on the way home aren't priority number one. What's priority number one? The mission of God is priority number one. Safety needs to get knocked down a few rungs. What's needed of resilient disciples living for Jesus in exile is the virtue of courage. And our courage comes from our confidence in Christ. That's where it's rooted. We can have confidence in the midst even of persecution. See, without courage, we won't think and live differently from the norm. Without courage... We'll be unable to live distinctly from the inexorable push and pull of culture. Without courage, we'll use screens the way everyone else does. Without courage, we won't stand up for the right things at the right times. See, resilient disciples actually find that they gain courage from their participation in the church. And I'm so glad to see that. We're going to look at a slide here. Here's what's going on. 73% of resilient disciples said their church helps them build courage to live their faith in public. Praise God. And 64% said their church builds courage to help them tell others about what they believe. That is both an encouraging thing and a challenge to us. We can grow at this, but it is deeply encouraging that that courage is being fostered and built in for resilient disciples in their churches. What a rich history we have of Peter's and John's standing before councils, knowing that the church is backing them in prayer that they would be bold and they would continue to proclaim Jesus. That was the case in 155 AD in an amphitheater Polycarp, the church father, was asked to deny Christ and proclaim Caesar as Lord. And the faithful pastor answered, 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? 
Look, I want to be clear. I'm not advocating for, for negligence. I'm advocating for biblical priorities where our personal safety is bumped from the top of the list. It's tempting to put safety first, and I think that that actually stifles mission. So let's ensure that we're forming resilient disciples who put mission first. Second, resilient disciples are prepared to share the hope they profess. Let's look at 1 Peter 3, 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The word defense comes from the Greek word apologia. Oh, there we go. Apologia. Apologia. And this is where we actually get the word apologetics from. Can you tell Greek isn't my first language? This is where we get the word apologetics from. This text is often referred to as the apologetics great commission. It has to do with giving an answer, the reasonableness of the faith professed and presenting that. William Lane Craig and the late Ravi Zacharias have done this so eloquently for so many years. There are many that we can look to who prioritize apologetics and what we see in their ministry and what we see in the history of the church that's constantly been looking to give rich, deep answers to complicated, troubling questions of faith. And I praise God for that. And they really root apologetics in this text in 1 Peter and so we need to know, we need to know what we believe and we need to be prepared to respectfully explain our faith and the hope that we have in Jesus. When Peter wrote this letter around 60 AD to the Christians in Asia Minor, it was a time of great hostility in the area. Early believers were being ostracized by Jewish groups in the synagogue and the Roman government was turning up the heat on them really for four main reasons. Here, here were a few things. They were thought to be atheists, which is it's funny, it's kind of ironic, but they were thought, Christians, the early church, were thought to be atheists. Why? Well, because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in the gods. So they were accused of being atheists. They were thought to be cannibals. Can you guess why? They were thought to be cannibals because they would gather together in their meetings and they would eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. Uh, they were accused of being anti-government and against the emperor, really because they would only honor the emperor, but they wouldn't worship him as God. And then fourthly, they were thought to be incestuous. The reason was because they use language like we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are a family and then they would marry each other. And so they were accused of being incestuous. And so it's in this context that the apostle Peter is insisting that followers of Jesus always be prepared to make a defense of the faith. How will you respond to such accusations? How will you respond to the questioning that you receive? What would be some modern equivalents in our time, in our moment, that we might be pressed on, that there would be wide disagreement with Christians on? Well, when it comes to the sanctity of human life, that would certainly be one. The idea of beginning and end of life issues and the intrinsic value of every human life. The Christian sexual ethic as it pertains to marriage between one man and one woman. 
The exclusivity of Christ, the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation and other areas where Christians believe in objective truth in a subjective relativistic age. Here's a hard question for you. If pressed, do you feel equipped and prepared to make a defense to someone who asks you any of those? Look, our, our goal is actually to help you know what you believe and how to express it. Right? We try and shape our preaching and things like our seminars and resources and podcasts and things that we produce. It, it's all part of an attempt to equip you in your belief and your sharing of that belief, expressing it to others. But Peter's also getting at something, something else. It's not just an intellectual exercise that I have a Rolodex of answers to hard questions. It's good to study these things and to know them and to be able to articulate them. 100%, absolutely. But Peter's also saying here, listen carefully, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. I think our hope is best described in this letter at the very beginning. In 1 Peter 1, verse three, here's what he says. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It goes on to say, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is where our hope lies, that Jesus died and on the cross bore our sin and our shame, but then he rose. He is our living hope. And in our living hope, in Jesus, we, we get attached to Jesus, his living hope. The fact that he died and he rose becomes the promise for our future as well as we place our trust in him. Jesus is our living hope. This is the hope we are called to embody, to articulate and defend to those who ask us. It's part of the mission of God. Now, Peter must be assuming here that the inward hope of Christians results in lives so noticeably different that unbelievers are prompted to ask why we're so distinctive. That is a challenge. Because I confess, a lot of my living isn't in such a way so noticeably different that people are constantly asking me, why I'm so distinctive and leading me to tell them about Jesus. But that is the Christian hope. Christian hope is so real and is so distinctive that non-Christians are, are, are puzzled about it and ask for a reason. I, I want to encourage you here because as we look at 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that you have Right? A lot of us get really sweaty and maybe we've thought about some of the conversations we've had with people where they've asked us about our faith and, and it's like, oh, I, I was just so tongue-tied and so nervous and I, I just went on this rant at one point. I kind of blacked out. I don't even know what I said, right? Like, th that's all fair. That's all, that happens, right? And, and God's gracious. In, in Mark 13, though, I want you to take courage from this. In Mark 13, Jesus says, but be on your guard. 
For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And this is, listen, listen to this in terms of countercultural mission of God. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Part of our task, part of our mandate. And verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. Think of Polycarp before the emperor. Think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Take courage for a couple reasons. One, because you are a part of a church that wants to help you be prepared to make a defense for the faith whenever anyone asks. But second, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit is with you. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is with us. And and not just if we're being questioned in a synagogue or interrogated by a Roman governor does the Holy Spirit show up to help us. No, the Holy Spirit is with you and he's available to help you in all situations. And so pray, call out to God, ask the Spirit to give you wisdom, to give you words in moments that come your way. Don't be so scared that you would say the wrong thing, that you avoid the opportunities for the discussions that are put in your lap. Instead, trust that the Holy Spirit wants to join you in your desire to share Jesus with others. That pleases God. Thirdly, resilient disciples conduct themselves in a spirit of love and respect. Back to verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, this inheritance, this living hope should govern govern our present mood and it should inform how we interact with others. I really admire a pastor who, who writes books as well named Scott Sauls and I had the opportunity to chat with him once and he said something that, that, that's really stuck with me. He said, in my 30 years of being a follower of Christ and in my 25 years of being an ordained minister of the gospel, I've never met a single person who said, I fell in love with Jesus because a Christian scolded me. I've never met a person with that story, but I've met scores of people who said, my entryway into Christianity was when a Christian loved me when I wasn't expecting them to love me. They were kind to me when I was expecting them to be mean to me. Look, we we don't do much for the gospel with one-upmanship and Jesus jukes and Bible slams when our intention is to win an argument. I think actually in the cultural climate of easy offense and looking for things to be offended by, I think Christians' best opportunity right now to be a witness for the gospel is to step into that climate in a spirit of gentleness, humility, respect, and kindness. Look, we are actually called to wade into situations and disagree with others because we don't share the same worldview but we are at the same time, this text is telling us, to disagree in an agreeable way. Oh, I disagree with that guy, but I sure like him. 
right? To embody the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. To embody those as we live for Jesus. And to always be ready to share the hope we have in Christ, but with courtesy and grace and warmth. Madeline Langle put it this way. She wrote, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's the vision. That's the vision that Peter is painting here. To be engaged in this countercultural mission is to engage in two things at the same time. Here's a couple $5 theological words. To engage in orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is right conduct. And our orthopraxy, our right conduct, our resolute commitment to serving and sacrificing for others and to conduct ourselves with a gentle, respectful way of Jesus will open a door to orthodoxy that others will actually be compelled to walk through and to approach you about. As we wrap up, I actually want to jump back to Acts chapter 4, when, when Peter was arrested by the same leaders who had arrested Jesus and standing before the council and, and questioned Peter, the writer of this letter, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, gave the reason for the hope he had. Peter, the one who denied his master three times when Jesus was before that same Jewish council, now boldly declared to them, verse 10, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What changed in Peter? the coward, and made Peter the bold proclaimer of the gospel. The next verse says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, this goes all the way back to the first practice of resilient disciples. They have intimacy with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And so if you and I should be put in a situation like Peter, oh, that our persecutors would say the same thing. They've been with Jesus. So may we be ready to give a reason for our hope with bold gentleness. Think about how Peter would have felt that night after his appearance in the court compared to how he would have felt after Jesus' court appearance. Rather than denying his Lord, Peter had glorified him. And Jesus used the bold gentleness of Peter and the early church to change the world. And my prayer as we, as we wrap up this series, which to us isn't merely a series, we actually want to form disciples in these ways form these practices into the disciple making we do as a church and as you disciple people personally in your lives that, that we would actually take these practices and embed them into the way we make disciples. It's critically important.
And my prayer as we wrap up this series, but certainly don't move on from it, is that you would find the sugar water life deeply unsatisfying and instead join Jesus in changing the world. And the way to do that is by engaging in counter-cultural mission. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray for courage and boldness among us, Lord. I pray that you would use the resilient disciples among us to further your kingdom, to be your witnesses, Lord. So I pray you would build boldness into us, courage into us. Lord, I pray that that we would deeply desire to know your word and to understand culture and how to speak Jesus into it. And Lord, I pray that we would do all of those things with real hearts of humility, of gentleness and kindness, that those around us would, would actually be wooed towards you. God, I ask that that you would use resilient disciples that get built in this place to actually change the world. You did it with Peter and that first little band of disciples. Oh God, would you continue to do it worldwide for the sake of your fame and glory and would we find our deepest joy in living that life for you. In Jesus' name, amen.